Now we have the pleasure of having John and Tamale Conrad, who are going to read the Old Testament reading, and then Matthew Blythe and Madeline Jelly are going to read the New Testament reading. John and Tamale. Good morning. This morning's Old Testament reading is from Genesis chapter 18, verses 22 to 33. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the, the place for the sake of the fifty righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but, but the, the word, word of our God, God stands forever. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against us. And he has committed to us the message of, message of reconciliation. We are therefore God's, er, Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to reconcile to God. And God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might, be right, we might become the righteousness of God. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, Rock Creek. Um, I am... Uh, going to be speaking from this passage, primarily the Second Corinthians passage. We're continuing on. Eric uh, was in 
first uh, second Corinthians four, and then the beginning of five um, last week, the last two weeks, and now I'm finishing up uh, chapter five this week with probably um, one of the most powerful and succinct summaries of the good news about Jesus Christ that we have in the New Testament. And so I'm uh, I'm glad for the opportunity to be with you guys this morning and uh, and opening up God's word together. Would you pray with me, Father? Um, we need your light. Uh, you, Jesus, say that you are the light of the world and that that light is life to all people. And we need that now or else we'll stay in darkness. And we'll stay uh, not reconciled to you at war with you. And we don't want that. And you don't want it, which is why you sent your son. So shine his light into our hearts this morning as we open your word together. Amen. In the recent movie, Jojo Rabbit, Jojo Betzler is pretty much the world's worst Nazi. It's a movie that's set during World War II, and Jojo Betzler is a 10-year-old boy who is uh, aspiring to one day have Hitler, the Führer, as his best friend. Um, and Jojo has all the enthusiasm you could want in a good young Nazi. He, uh, he, um, he, hates, hates Jewish people with a burning passion. But unfortunately, Jojo is, is not very strong. He's not very big. He's not all that smart. And he's really not all that brave. And, uh, and through the course of the movie, we see uh, Jojo, this is an early reveal, uh, so it's not a spoiler, but Jojo um, discovers hiding in his home, his mother is hiding a young Jewish girl and so Jojo has to, uh, over spending time with this little girl, this young lady, realizes that, uh, that Jews don't actually have forked tongues, nor do they hang upside down to sleep like bats, nor do they have dark magic mind control powers. But this, this little girl is a person just like him. And so Jojo goes from a really bad Nazi to... Um, to, to a progression of not being a Nazi at all. He has to put down his, his final stronghold of passionate hate for another person. Why was this movie Im impactful? It was, uh, it was nominated for um, an Academy Award for Best Picture. Uh, why is this movie being made right now? I think that we see in our culture um, a crying out for, uh, for the end of senseless hatred. We see a desire for reconciliation between ethnic peoples. Um, we see recently the, the, the outrage and the fury over the death of Ahmad Aubrey, um, who, was, uh, who, who was chased uh, and, and, and profiled and, 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 um, and believed by two other white men believed to be uh, a wicked person because of because of the fact that he looked different, because he may come from uh, a a group that has different economic realities, and the, and because he comes from a group that speaks differently, and I think this is an outrage. But uh, but Paul in this passage gives us a way forward because Paul is actually dealing with the same exact things. Paul uh, has written this letter to the Corinthians that we call Second Corinthians. Uh, most, mostly, almost totally, in order to defend his 
um, his apostolic ministry, his ministry to them and his message to them. Um, he is being accused of not looking right. He, he's not that good looking. He's being accused of speaking badly. Um, and he's being accused of not being very successful. The, the same things that lead us to accuse others of wickedness were being leveled against Paul. When we, uh, when we find this racism growing up in our hearts, it comes from the same places that the Corinthians were accusing Paul, looks and success and, and speech, all these outward appearances. And Paul is addressing those in this passage that we turn to now. So Paul offers a solution. The solution that Jojo Rabbit offered was if you spend enough time, then if you spend enough time, then you'll find the humanity in somebody. If you just slow down and are, and are curious, then in that person that you hate, you'll find the inner humanity and grow naturally to love them. I think that's the most common answer in our culture today is that if we would slow down and get to know people, then we would, um, then we would understand who they are, that they're a person like us, and that they're valid. And I, and I want to say that that is a good thing, but not strong enough. It's similar to what Paul says in verse 16. He says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. That is, we don't look at their outside and decide uh, what we should think of them. We don't look at their color, the way they speak, um, their economic success or failure to determine who we think they are. We don't, we don't judge them by a worldly standard, which in, um, so the opposite of that would be an insight or a spiritual standard. But why, why doesn't that work? Why doesn't it work that, what, that if we just say it enough, stop looking at the outside, look at the inside, then you'll, then you'll grow to love people who are different than you instead of fear and hate them. Why is it not enough? I think it is not enough. Um, otherwise, we would be a lot further along with this as a culture. Otherwise, uh, every time somebody ends a speech with something like be good to one another, it would actually do something in our hearts. And we would then want to be good to other people and actually do it instead of fearing them and, and secretly thinking ourselves uh, above and different than people who look different, talk different, and have different economic realities. Why doesn't it work? Well, let's pretend for a second that my neighborhood where I live um, in Fairland neighborhood, which if you're visiting with us is comical and laughable, but it's amazing how quickly you get used to calling your neighborhood Fairyland. But I live in Fairland, which is on Lookout Mountain, and it's on the Georgia side of Lookout Mountain. So let's pretend for a minute that the Tennessee side, which is the line runs right down my street, so my across the street neighbors are in a different state and part of a different neighborhood. Let's pretend for a second that we are at war with that. Um, let's pretend that we're at war. And because of that, I'm suspicious. I'm suspicious of the people that I don't already know. I'm suspicious of anyone who comes on my street 
that I don't know already or who doesn't look right. I'm suspicious because I think they're going to take what's mine. I'm suspicious because they're going to come and take, um, take the things that I have acquired from me and for my safety. They're going to hurt me or they're going to hurt my friends. And, uh, and I live at a state of war. And then I become suspicious of people. Maybe those folks who live on Mount Olive Road, whose side are they going to take? I don't know. A lot of them work in Chattanooga. So are they Tennesseans? Or, but, but they live in Georgia. Are they more like me and my friends? I don't know, those uh, Hennigers, you never really can trust them out there on Mount Olive Road. And certainly not the Jellies or the Conrads or the Simons or any of those other people who live out there, um, not to mention the Bostroms, they're way out. I don't trust any of them because they live in a different place than me. They, they're from a different place because I live in a reality of war. Other people are dangerous. And Paul is saying in this passage, that, that we live in a, in a wartime mindset, in a wartime heart. Will other people take my job or my house or my safety? Will other people take the affection that I want? Will other people take the attention that should be mine? Will they expose my weaknesses and my fears? And that's the problem with the Jojo Rabbit solution. That solution says if we spend enough time with a person, then we'll grow to love them and understand them and appreciate them. But I think uh, oddly and, uh, and ironically, the Jojo Rabbit solution ignores the wartime mentality. It's set in the middle of a war and it ignores the fact that that war happened because Germany was afraid in very small part. This is a succinct um, uh, summary of, of what happened in that war that Germany was feeling ashamed and they needed an enemy. Uh, so they vilified other nations and they especially vilified the Jewish people so that they could uh, begin to feel superior to them. It was done out of insecurity in their place in the world, which is what drives us, what drives us to hate other people, to prejudge other people, to see other people from a worldly standpoint because we are so insecure with who we are. Are we safe? Do I matter? How do I deal with what's wrong with me? So we need other people to be wrong so that we can feel right. We need to be able to vilify other people so that we can see ourselves as the hero. So finding the good in someone to end our prejudice won't work. Because, like we said, we need them to be worse than us. We need to maintain our prejudice to maintain our position in the world. And we won't get beyond that until we know the story from Genesis. The story of Abraham, which has always been a tough one for me to understand. Why would you, why would you do this with God? Is this like a bargaining process that seems just, um, it seems too forward, Abraham. It, it's too bold. And, uh, and it's a bit annoying. Why do you keep working it down? You know, I'm an American. I want to cut right to the chase. What's it going to take, God? Tell me what, tell me what, uh, what we need. How many righteous people before you're going to spare the whole city? And I always thought this was like a marketplace bargain. And it is until you see um, this deeper truth that's going on, that, that Abraham is starting with the assumption, look, we all know that shame spreads out. 
we all know that guilt and shame can spread over a whole family and a whole people. So if my son uh, breaks into the neighbor's house and steals something, then our whole family is shamed. Then we lose face. Then we are, we are, um, we are lesser. We have lost our position in the society and, and in our neighborhood. Because shame spreads out. And Abraham is doing, uh, is, is experimenting here. He says, um, you are a God who's revealed yourself to me. Let's see if not only shame spreads out, what if righteousness spreads out? What if, what if shame can cover a people, can righteousness cover a people? And he works them down. Would 50 righteous save a whole city? Would 30 righteous save a whole city? And he gets down to 10 righteous. And he asks, would that save an entire city? Would that amount of righteousness cover over the wickedness of others? It's a substitutionary righteousness. Could that righteousness stand in for the shame and guilt of others? And that's the same principle we see at work on the cross, where we see, um, where we see Paul say, because one died, all died. Because Jesus died in place of all the shameful and guilty. We can count all of them as dead. And especially verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, uh, Jesus accepts our sin and spreads out his righteousness so that it covers all of us. In 1975, many of you guys know Joe Novenson. Um, He is a pastor here in our community, and I'm privileged to consider him a friend. In 1975, Joe Novenson's hands were crushed. And as, uh, as they were put back together through many surgeries, um, one of his thumbs, it turned out, was not healing properly. And it became, um, it became gangrenous, meaning the thumb was dying. It did not have any life, enough life to carry on on its own. And so what they did is they took that hand and they sewed it to his chest. They stitched that hand onto his chest or into his chest for six weeks. What happened was that the life and health of his chest passed into his thumb so that his thumb came to life and now it's operational. And the the health of the chest passed into the thumb and that is exactly what happens when we stand in Christ. When Paul says, be reconciled to Christ, take his health into you. You do not have to be dead anymore. You don't have to be scared anymore. You don't have to wonder about your position in the world if you're significant, if you're safe, if you matter anymore, because you have been sown into Christ and his health is now your health. His position before the Father as perfect and righteous and acceptable is now your position before the Father. Guilt isn't what covers you, his righteousness is what covers you. It has seeped out and covered all who stand in him, all who have accepted the gift that he offers to us. How does that affect this reality, the result, the result of our righteousness in Christ that he stood for us 
The result is reconciliation. Paul says, Paul uses a term there, reconciliation. That means uh, it's a political term, often referring to countries at war. And then they would come together in reconciliation. And the war was over. Peace had been declared. And because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and ascension to the Father on your behalf, there's no more war with God. There's no more uncertainty about where you stand. There's no more striving to be better than someone else because you are already declared good. Your heavenly father looks at you if you are in Christ and says, you are good. You are mine. You are protected. You belong. The war is over. And when the war ends, suspicion ends. And that's why, that's why Paul can say in verse 16, because Christ died for all, we no longer look at anybody from a worldly point of view. We don't have to look at their, the way they appear on the outside, their skin color, or, where they, or what culture they come from, or their economic realities, or whether they speak the same language in the same way as I do, to determine if they are a true and real live human who matters. We don't look at them from the world's point of view, we look at them as reconciled and righteous people who aren't suspicious anymore. And so we look at them as true humans. There's an end to the hostility. We don't have to look inside another person to find if they are good enough. Christ looked inside of us not to find if we are good enough to die for it. Paul says again in Romans that while we were still sinners, while we still hated him, while we deserved his suspicion, that's when he died for us. We don't have to look inside of other people to find if they are good enough to get to know, good enough to put down the hate, good enough to, to stop our suspicions. We look at them and say, that is one for whom Christ died. That is one whom God deemed worthy of, his own, of the death of his son. We look in them not to find enough good in them, but to find the Father's love given to them. And that's what makes them worthy. And that's x-ray vision. That's how to have x-ray vision, is to know that I have been, uh, I have been covered by Christ's righteousness, my position is secure. That same, uh, that same reality, that same good news has been offered to everyone around me. And I can look in and into them and see not someone who is good enough to love, but someone who has been loved enough to, to be treated well by me. So I want you, as Eric has been encouraging us lately, you may have seen him a number of times, uh, heard him a number of times say, notice what you're noticing. Notice what you're giving attention to. And so when you notice yourself giving attention to someone who is different than you, uh, being suspicious, um, uh, applying to, uh, to someone else uh, negative traits that you don't have a real reason to give to them, I want you to notice that and ask yourself, if I knew, if I owned that I am righteous because of Christ, that I'm covered by his right standing with God, that I'm safe and accepted and I have a place in this world, would I need then to be suspicious of that person? 
Notice what you're noticing. That's how to develop x-ray vision. When you notice more that you are righteous than that other person is suspicious. Will you do that? I pray you will. Amen.